This is Ye Old Dragon's Library, the storytelling podcast. This is the place to hear fantastical fiction and hear from authors of fantastical news stories. This episode is another chapter in the fantasy novel Plantwise, book one in the Steward's World series. If you're ready for the magic of story, let's begin. Chapter 13 News did not travel well from Westerlin to Stonemount, usually taking twice as long as news coming from three times as much distance. The news of the birth of Princess Violet took three months to reach the palace. Spies and messengers hesitated to report on happy events in their longtime ally. Either they had adopted King Maddox's attitude toward Westerland, that anything happening there wasn't worth his attention, or they did not want to incur the wrath of their superiors. The royal family of Westerland, especially Princess Arden and her flourishing magic apple tree, were unwelcome topics in the palace. Rumors said Queen Bianca was failing after having given birth to a stillborn daughter. This, despite reserving every shriveled apple the ailing tree produced exclusively for her use. Few people dared to ask why the wizards, who had gifted Maddox with the magic apple tree, couldn't come and make it healthy again. Those who wanted to cause trouble asked instead why Ambrose the healer, the king's own great-uncle, couldn't heal the queen. Only a few knew he urged Bianca to stop eating the apples, but she was a stubborn little bit of fluff and insisted the apples would not harm her. The apples weren't the problem. When the news reached Maddox of the birth of Arden's daughter and the celebration throughout Westerland, he sneered and told himself to be grateful he had not married her. He would settle for nothing but sons. At least Bianca had given him one son who was finally thriving. He refused to admit even to himself, that was because Ambrose was no longer being slowly poisoned, which allowed him more healing energy to use on Prince Maxon. Maddox crumpled the parchment with the details of Violet's birth and silently cursed her for adding yet another name to the list of people he had to kill to attain his goals, meaning more delays. Did the stupid little farmer princess think he enjoyed having people killed? Yes, Clancy and Bathan enjoyed the task, and he was relieved to hand the work to them. But Arden was being totally unreasonable, first refusing to let him do her thinking for her, and now adding first a husband, and now a daughter to the barrier between him and taking the throne of Westerland. Violet was third in line for the throne, and wouldn't be allowed to leave Westerland when Maddox married her widowed mother. While Maddox considered using Arden's grief over Darian's inevitable and necessary death to make her pliable, he couldn't wrap his mind around how to turn a mother's bereavement into a tool. Perhaps that was a weakness in him. He blamed Bianca's screaming fit when he told her not to fret. When she had regained her strength, they would work on having another child. Women in her condition were known to be unreasonable, so he hadn't tried to cheer her with the new realization that he did regret their stillborn daughter, because daughters were just as useful for taking over other countries. He usually avoided Bianca, until her maids dressed and painted her into a semblance of her former beauty, so she could come to dinner. Now, though, Maddox stormed down the hallway to her rooms. The parchment with the news of Violet's birth crinkled in his tightening grip. Bianca was asleep when he stormed through the door, 
her delicate beauty shriveled like the half-eaten apple clutched in her claw-like hand. Her pale luster had turned to the white of melting snow, less a color than an impression of draining weakness that made him feel sick and tired himself, just looking at her. He used to enjoy cuddling up next to her in the enormous royal bed, waking often in the night to look at her and revel that she belonged to him and no one else. Now, Maddox could barely force himself to greet her when she tottered into the dining room. He was relieved when she tottered out an hour later to return to her bed. Maddox stood over the tiny shape, huddled under inches of blankets, shivering slightly in the warm night air. She was only the faintest reminder of the woman he had married, and that sickened him. He felt he had been robbed, but who could he blame? His gaze landed on the apple in her hand. A surge of nausea worked through him, turning into rage, and he snatched the apple up and flung it out the open window. Maddox, Bianca whispered, her eyes flickering open. She got only a grunt for an answer as he unfolded the crumpled parchment and read through the message again, torturing himself. I had the most amazing dream. He remembered a time when he loved listening to her silly dreams. Even when he laughed at her, she continued telling him. He had liked seeing the amazement and wonder and puzzlement that flickered across her once lovely face when she recited her totally meaningless dreams. When had he stopped finding enjoyment in her silliness? Another one, he snarled. Don't waste your energy telling me. You're angry with me. Me? Angry? Something snapped inside, like a fragile twig that let an entire log jam slide through a narrow spot in a swollen river thundering toward a dam already shaking from the pressure of the water. Why? Because you talk all day and say nothing? You're good for nothing. You're lucky that farmer princess only produced a girl. If she had a son, you would be even more hopeless. Arden had a daughter? How wonderful! Bianca struggled to sit up. We must send her a gift. I'll send her my curse. Why? Wonder of wonders, a bit of color touched her face. Or was that just a shadow from her frown of utter and characteristic confusion? She cursed me with that tree. No, Arden would never hurt anyone, not even you. Tears touched her eyes, and Bianca's voice grew stronger even as it trembled. Not even me? What reason would she have for wanting to hurt me? His voice cracked breaking the tone that so perfectly conveyed wounded innocence struggling for dignity. Is she right, Maddox? Have you been lying, turning the tree's magic to poison? Lying about what, he growled, and crumpled the parchment into a hard ball that he flung to the floor. He leaned over the bed, and Bianca cowered away, terror bringing color into her face for the first time since the birth of their daughter. What lies does she claim I've told? His voice dropped to a chill whisper. Bianca whimpered. Then her eyes rolled back in her head. Her body stiffened, convulsing twice before she went limp. Maddox stared, his heart thudding so loudly he nearly missed the whisper of breath escaping her body. His mind raced and he swallowed down a howl of fury. How could she do this to him? The timing was all wrong. None of his players were in the right place for the next step of conquest. Voices in the hallway, beyond the closed bedroom door, broke him out of the racing of his thoughts. Too many plans, too many calculations had to be redone, backed up, and revised. 
His head would burst before he knew what to do. Infuriated, the voice clearest in his head was Jago's, advising him that when the pieces did not fall into place, when someone failed in their assigned task, he should continue in his role, his task, until a better opportunity presented itself. Maddox released the breath that had begun to ache in his chest. Yes, continue in his role. He had garnered so much sympathy, so many more people willing to anticipate his every need, even as he played the role of bereaved father. Bianca? He made his voice crack. Bianca, please, darling! He went to his knees on the bed and leaned over her still form, shaking her, just as the bedroom door opened. Bianca, wake up! In the shadows of the bedroom, it didn't matter that he couldn't conjure up tears. The pain in his voice and the shaking of his body served more than adequately. He fought the maidservants just a little when they tried to hurry him from the room and covered his face with one hand as he staggered down the hallway, out of this place that already smelled of death. He went to his office and closed the door and filled the waiting time with plans and calculations until the palace healer knocked timidly on his door and regretfully informed him that Queen Bianca was dead. Arden was surprised when Maddox asked if he would be welcome at the Harvest Festival that fall. His father had not been able to attend since Maddox was a child, and the king now wanted to rectify that neglect and move toward rebuilding the ancient friendship between Westerland and Stonemount. She thought about what she had overheard the day her tree was stolen, the lies Maddox had told, the poison seeping ever outward from the heart of Stonemount, and the rumors that Bianca had not died of a lingering fever after childbirth. She found it highly unlikely that Maddox cared about the friendship with Westerland, unless it profited him and harmed Westerland. Yet what could she do? What could she say? She had told her parents all she had heard and seen and felt, and they were just as wary of any overtures of renewed friendship. The king's entire council was in agreement. Yet, to respond inhospitably to Maddox's request would just give him reason for further cruelties and lies. That might just be what he hoped for. King Alfred and his advisers agreed to proceed with caution and give him no excuses to strike at Westerland. Maddox appeared perfectly at ease, as if he had been coming to the Harvest Festival every year since childhood. The boyhood pretense of friendship between him and Alex had been little more than politeness, mixed with the eagerness of one boy to explore a different place and the eagerness of the other boy to show off his home. There were few words exchanged between the two men now, beyond what was expected by courtesy, but they didn't look daggers at each other as they had at Arden's wedding. Maddox clapped for the mummers and minstrels and praised the cider, tossed coppers to the children who came to sing for the nobles, and gorged on sweets and toffee-coated apples. When Darien joined in the fun and games between the palace guards and the city guards, Maddox showed none of the disdain Arden had expected. Rilling had passed along many reports of what Maddox said about the royal family of Westerland, thanks to friends he maintained in Stonemount. King Maddox despised a man who would descend from, as he termed it, the lofty position granted by his marriage, to socialize and especially to engage in games and contests with the commoners he had left behind. Arden scolded herself to ignore Maddox, 
and let her enjoy the silliness as her husband and his loyal troops battled with feather dusters for swords and cushions for armor, more liable to get hurt tripping over each other than from the blows and bumps. We've come to a break in the story. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a book that you might be interested in reading. Congratulations to Dana Lee, Mount Zion Ridge Press author, whose fantasy adventure novel, The Vermilion Riddle, is a finalist in the debut category of the 2023 Realm Awards competition. A combination of Lord of the Rings and Pride and Prejudice, Dana takes her readers into a world where rebels scheme to open the door between the fairy realm and the human world in hopes of conquest, domination, and revenge. The Vermilion Riddle by Dana Lee, published by Mount Zion Ridge Press. The July 15th Storytellers episode of Ye Old Dragon's Library will feature Andrew Norris, writing as A.S. Norris, where we talk about heroes and old-style adventure stories, as well as the genesis of his wayward mage, Jack Wartnose. And make sure you listen to the three episodes after that, where we'll be live, sort of, at the Realm Makers Conference, talking with authors and having a lot of fun. Special guest will be my partner in literary crime, Deborah Cohen-Smith, talking about her Last of Long-Haired Hippies series, as well as her newest novel, Mina, which won the Realm Award in 2022 for Paranormal Dark Fantasy. Who is Mina? What well-known piece of literature gave birth to her? And what future stories is Deborah planning? Listen and find out. And now, back to the story. Mid-afternoon, on the second day of the festival, Caitlin brought baby Violet out to join the family after her nap. Maddox stayed seated and held his practiced expression of polite amusement while the royal family gathered around the baby. He flinched several times when Violet giggled and squealed and made jabbering noises for her grandfather and uncle. He watched, alert, and braced to head off trouble when two men in dark clothes slunk through the shadows between the surrounding pavilions of other noble families. The problem with hired thugs, he reflected, was that they cared more about money than doing a job properly. They had no loyalty to anyone, so they were likely to speak what little they knew to save their own necks if they were captured. Finally, Clancy and Bathan returned from their gluttonous wanderings, clutching turkey legs and tankards of hard cider. Clancy sauntered up to the royal pavilion and leaned against the support pole, not looking at his king, but close enough to take a softly spoken instruction. Bathan sauntered into the shadows where the two strangers had gone. Minutes later, he stepped from the shadows and nodded to Clancy, who in turn glanced at his king and nodded to him. Maddox allowed himself only the faintest of smiles and turned to watch the royal family as they finished their ritual of adoring baby Violet. Alex gestured across the gardens toward the dancing square set up outside the garden gates and offered his arm to Caitlin. The girl blushed prettily, tucked a few loose strands of raven hair back into her crown of flowers, and curtsied to her prince. Alfred and Elise smiled at each other and linked arms and wandered away, down the narrow lanes between the pavilions, leaving Arden and Darien alone with their daughter. Maddox smiled for the first time in hours and slouched a little in his chair. He was waiting for it, 
but still twitched slightly when two dark shadows leaped from between the pavilions and flung the king and queen of Westerland to the ground. There was little time for outcry from the victims, less time for anyone to realize what had happened. A single shriek went up from a woman who saw blood on the knife cruelly yanked from King Alfred's throat. Maddox flicked a glance at Clancy, who nodded to Bathan. "'Murder!' Bathan roared and dashed straight at the dark-clothed men. "'Guards! Guards! They've murdered the king and queen!' The two strangers stood frozen for a mere heartbeat, stunned at the accusation coming from the man who had given them gold coins just a few moments before. Terror folded their faces and they fled. Darien raced after them, shouting for the palace guards. Clancy and Bathan reached the two assassins several crucial moments before Darien. Both strangers were writhing in the torn grass, blood bubbling from slit throats, before he could shout for the men to be taken alive. Behind them, Arden dropped to her knees next to her parents' bloody, two still bodies. She clutched her daughter close, hiding the baby's eyes from the sight. Her mouth worked in a silent cry. All color left her face, and she swayed as if she would fall. Across the garden, Arden's apple tree shuddered, the branches waving as if in a human seizure. The glow of magic winked out with the abruptness of a thunderclap. The two assassins carried gold coins with the boar's head crest of the treasury of Ambray. Under their clothes, stained with blood, the palace guards found papers with the seal of Ambray, ordering the men to kill every member of the royal family they could reach. They had specific instructions to kill Arden, because the King of Ambray blamed her for the death of his daughter. Wizards had investigated, and determined that she used her plant-wise magic to turn the apple tree's magic to poison. Likely out of jealousy, because everyone knew, according to the investigators, that she expected to become Queen of Stonemount. Witnesses insisted they had overheard her on her wedding day, encouraging Bianca to eat an apple every day to help her conceive and birth another child. Many hours later, Arden, Darian, Alex, Coman, and Maddox stared at the coins and papers spread out on the table in what was now King Alex's study. "'My friends,' Maddox said in a soothing voice that no one was willing or able to appreciate, "'there can be no doubt.' I have seen that handwriting many times over the years. That is the handwriting of Prime Minister Gregory. Ambre has turned against you. Against us, actually. They also blame me for Bianca's death. They are threatening to take my son from me. Letters can be forged. Handwriting can be copied. I don't believe Ambre had anything to do with it. Alex shook his head and clenched his fists, raising them for a moment as if to crash them down on the table. He dropped them into his lap instead. The time for swallowing our private hurts for the sake of peace is over. It is time to go to war, before Ambray strikes again, before they follow through on their threats. Something about this feels very wrong, Darian said, his voice steely quiet. Treachery is always a sour note. Maddox glanced around at his tiny audience and stood to emphasize his words. We can't give them time to prepare. We must attack immediately. What good can we do against Ambray? Alex asked. Even our two countries combined could only match them. We have no advantage. Alex, Arden blurted, you can't be serious. War? Without confronting them? Without giving them a chance to prove their innocence? 
My dear Arden, all I can offer is what I have heard and seen, and the evidence sitting here before us. I want to give you justice. Give us all justice. Maddox held out his hand, in a gesture that reminded her all too much of that first dance when she was a silly child full of dreams. The memory made her shudder. Mark my words, no good will come of this war. We will destroy ourselves and innocent people. We will not destroy ourselves. The slightest smirk caught up one corner of his mouth. The King of Brentonwald has expressed his interest in allying with us. Brentonwald? Alex sat back farther in his chair. They could swallow us and Ambre and have room for dessert. Alex, don't joke at such a time. Arden buried her face in her hands, struggling against tears. Despite her arguments, Arden stood at the gates of Portham less than three weeks later to bid farewell to her brother and husband as they led the soldiers of Westerland to join forces with Maddox and Stonemount's army. They would meet at the common border with Ambre and move up into the enemy country. Arden's only consolation, as she held her daughter up and helped her wave goodbye, was that Alex had sent secret envoys to the King of Ambre, pleading for a chance to speak and find out the truth and wrest peace from the jaws of war. Winter would come quickly, and she prayed that their family would be together again before the first snows fell. "'Stand up straight and hold your head high, my dear,' Glenna whispered, as if all the people waiting in the gates of the city to bid farewell to the departing soldiers could see or hear her. "'You are the light of your kingdom. You must set an example your parents would approve. No tears. You must be confident, or your people will have no hope.' Oh, Auntie, if only I could be with them. War is no place for the plant-wise, child, except in the aftermath to help the healers, Glynna admitted after a moment's pause. It's no place for your menfolk, either, and if your brother's plan works, they'll be home in only a few weeks, excited and tired and grateful for the adventure they missed. Let's go inside where no one can see us, shall we? She brushed her ghostly fingers across the princess's cheek, managing to dislodge a single tear. Violet chuckled and flapped her little hands, trying to grasp the transparent ones over her head. Arden smiled at her daughter's antics, then caught her breath at a return of that trembling aching deep inside. That tiny crack in her iron control would turn into a flood in another moment if she didn't take her teacher's advice. With Coman's hand resting on her elbow for guidance and support, she hurried down the cobblestone streets to the sanctuary of the palace. Late into the night, she sat at the base of her apple tree, cradling her sleeping daughter, wrapped in blankets against the fall chill, and prayed, staring up at the stars with eyes swollen and misty with tears. We're already at the end of today's chapter. I hope you enjoyed yourself and you're eagerly looking forward to the next episode of Ye Old Dragons Library.